This week, the gambling debate turns to age-old questions. August finally turned hot, at least in the U.S. Senate race. And the new math that struggling school systems are trying to make add up. These topics and more this week on Columbus on the Record. From the Battelle studio at WOSU at Coside, this is Columbus on the Record, WOSU-TV's weekly analysis of the top stories affecting Central Ohio. Joining Karen Kassler this week, Ann Fisher, talk host for WOSU 820. Bill Hershey, State House Bureau Chief for the Dayton Daily News. Jerry Austin, Democratic strategist. And Mark Weaver, Republican strategist. I'm Karen Kassler with Ohio Public Radio and Television State House News Bureau. Very pleased to be sitting in for Mike Thompson this week. Kids like their video games, but some are questioning how old you have to be to play the slots. A few lawmakers are challenging the Ohio Lottery Commission's plans to allow 18-year-olds to play video slots at any hour. The commission says it's just another game, and 18-year-olds can already play the other lottery game. So, Bill Hershey, this is yet another topic of discussion in the continuing discussion about expanded gambling in Ohio. We have slots. We have the casino issue. What's the issue here? Well, the issue is whether 18-year-olds should be able to play. And I noticed there was a debate within the Republican caucus in the Ohio Senate, which is usually the most cohesive part of state government. Senate President uh, Bill Harris said this is an awful thing. The number two person, President uh, Senator Niehaus, said, well, why shouldn't they be able to play? They can go off and fight wars. But I think we're really missing where the casino slot, the slot machine debate is right now, where it will be most important. It's the Ohio Supreme Court. LetOhioVote.org wants the court to delay the uh, slots for a year so there can be a vote in November 2010. If by a long shot that happens, there will be a hole in the budget bigger than Duck Run. That's where Governor Strickland is from, and he'll have to shuffle more than Muhammad Ali at his most nimble <laughs> to fill that budget hole. So I think you got to get past that court case before we really know whether 18-year-olds or anybody else can play. And we still have a public hearing coming up on this later on. September 2nd, or the lottery, yes, the end of this month, September 21st, I think. And September 2nd being the day that uh, Let Ohio Vote goes to the Ohio Supreme Ohio Court Supreme to argue Court. that. Yeah. I think there are some voters, though, who are already confused because we have two issues here. We have the governor's slots plan, which is right now not going to be on the ballot, but the casino issue, which right now is going to be on the ballot. Voters are going to be confused for sure, but Bill's put his finger on the problem here. Everyone agrees the budget will blow up at some point and the governor will have to find some money. In fact, it may be so bad he might suggest that eight-year-olds can play the slots instead of 18-year-olds because they're going to need every dollar of revenue they can get. Any thoughts on? Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, <laughs> between the 18 and 21 year olds, how many people? You know, how much revenue is based in that in that in that uh, in those age groups? Probably an awful lot. They're going to be the ones that are going to be out. But the point about whether they can go off to war or not is well made, and it's made often with the drinking laws as well. Well, I think another issue here too is until we have an issue on or a, a result on the casino issue, how many racetracks are going to put up sixty-five million dollars to have these slot machines? If potentially we could have casinos in the four biggest Ohio cities, That's a how good many? Point. Yeah. They're supposed to put up the money in September, uh, six, sixty-five million or part of it. Or, uh, yeah, down payment. Down at least. payment. So I, I wonder they would probably like to know the answer to the November 3rd question before they do that. So maybe it would be to their advantage if the Ohio Supreme Court drags out this litigation over the slots as opposed to the casino. Well, cons consider one thing that there's one of these uh, companies that's in a win-win uh, situation, which is Penn National. Uh, 
Penn National has racetracks, so if they get slots, the racetracks, they have that. They're also, you know, one of the uh, supporters of the casino issue, so they're looking to get casinos. So if, if it goes down, they still got the racetracks. If it, if it wins, they got both. And if it goes down, they also have Mountaineer in West Virginia, so they win in that regard That's as well. That's exactly right. The house always wins. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of a play is that going to get, though? I mean, you already have, you have the anti gambling groups, the religious groups that are in on this. We have Mountaineer, MTR Gaming, the owners of Scioto Downs that are in on this. And then we have the casino developers. I mean, this is once again promising to be, at least the casino issue, another ridiculously expensive campaign. Keep, it, keep in mind that, that, that you, know, you can't tell the players without a scorecard. Because last time we had a casino issue on the, on the ballot, Jeff Jacobs, who did not own Mountaineer uh, and Presque Isle at the time, was on the proponent side. Now that he does own them, he's on the opponent's side. Um, and it's just, it's just an interesting type of thing to watch how everybody maneuvers here and what's in their best interest. And yesterday, on the front page of the PD, you know, he came up with a plan to, to have a casino in downtown Cleveland by executive order of the governor, which I don't think the governor can do an executive order about casinos. I don't think he can. <laughs> and the governor already threw some at least moderately cold water on that in an, another story in the Plain Dealer today. He said he didn't think that sounded like it was such a good idea. I think the money, though, that you point out, I think Penn National spent, was it $30 million or something, to defeat the proposal in Wilmington? So I wonder how much they're willing to spend to pass this one and how much Mountaineer on the other side will ante up to defeat it. I don't know if they'll get into Penn National territory, but it's going to be perhaps yet another record spending campaign. Well, I can't imagine that the governor would do an executive order for a casino when no. he didn't even want to do an executive order for slots. So he wanted that to He's go to the legislature. Casinos. Well, he was against slots, against, too. He, exactly. He was against <laughs> slots, too. And I think there's uh, so many levels. The voters are going to be extremely confused by the time they get to the ballot that who knows what's going to happen. But when wonder, they're confused, they vote differently. Do you think the economy will make this uh, more likely to pass, this casino issue? You know, here's what the one thing we know. When voters are confused, they tend to vote no. Mm -hmm. And when voters are economically worried, they tend to vote no. And so there's going to be a bunch of no voting unless the consultants and the campaigns can overcome that. Well, speaking of voting, we're now looking to next year's ballot on topic two and looking at a brawl in the fall this year. Democratic Senate candidates Lee Fisher and Jennifer Bruner were all smiles when they talked about each other earlier this year after announcing that they both wanted to take George Voinovich's Senate seat. Well, now Bruner is seething about what she says is an attack on her family. Fisher says he's blameless. So Jerry Austin, let me ask you, the Democrats can ill afford a bitter and expensive primary at this point, right? No. <laughs> Nobody uh, can. No, no. I mean, I'm, I mean, I, my experience is that whenever we've had bitter and expensive primaries, uh, we've won in, in, in the fall. Uh, you know, the notion that, that primaries are bad, uh, I'm not a proponent of that. Um, you have two people that are running for an office right now, and they're, you know, it's going to heat up. This is nothing uh, compared to what's going to happen uh, later on. And uh, all the f focus is going to be on the Democrats' race because no one's going to focus on, on, on Mr. Portman except how much money he raises each, each quarter. Uh, so I, I don't see a, a Democratic primary being a problem. Well, the last time we had a bitter and expensive primary in 2006 in the gubernatorial race, uh, Ken Blackwell ended up losing. It, it turned out to be a, a pretty uh, bitter primary. Is that why he lost? I mean, I, I didn't realize he lost because he, he, lo he won the primary. I well, certainly the idea that the attention was turned on the Republicans may not have helped him as he went down the well, road. I, I, but I think, I think, you know, that's apples and oranges. I mean, after 16 years of, of, of Republican domination and Tom Noe, uh, I don't know that Ken Blackwell ever had a chance, uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't use that as an example. I go back to dating myself to, to 1982, where you had Jerry Springer, Dick Celeste, and, and Bill Brown running in a, in a 
a primary where uh, you know Dick Dick Sless won and wound up winning the general election fairly easily because there there, there was a lot of attention paid paid to the Democrats. So I this is the high profile race of next year until the governor's race comes into view, which which it will. Uh, but the primary, uh, you know, I think will be um, close. Uh, and I think there'll be a lot of attention, and I don't see a problem having a contentious primary. Well, let me ask you all about the idea, if Jennifer Bruner's running against Lee Fisher and really starts running on the economy and job losses, how does she not taint Ted Strickland with that as well? I mean, he, Ted Strickland ran with Lee Fisher. He was his development director. She doesn't not taint him. She taints him. How, is, mean, this bad? how is this good for the Democrats? I, I don't think she really cares at this point. She wants to go to the U.S. Senate, and it's by now they must have had, um, you know, crisp and, and uh, terse discussions about, you know, you know, whether he backs her or not and what she will do to, in, in spite of it. So The uh, U.S. Senate is the most exclusive club in the world. There's a hundred members. Open seats come up only once a generation. People will step over their mother to get to the U.S. Senate, which is why Jennifer Booner will likely not drop out of this race, notwithstanding the fact that she's had a very poor start fundraising. I think she can catch up, but people say, oh, she's going to get out. Chris Redfern lays awake at night. He's the state Democrat chairman, worried that every dollar that goes into this primary is one less dollar he can use to battle a Republican. He's worried, but not Jennifer. No, she's Burner. not now. It's not her well, problem. Is Lee Fisher worried, though? Did he expect this to be easy? Oh, I, think I don't think Lee Fisher think he, always worries, yeah. I think. Yeah. He's a worry ward. But Jerry said that Democrats don't suffer when they have bitter primaries. Well, the one he alluded to was 1982, Dick Celeste won. The other bitter one was 1974, John Glenn won. I would submit that Jennifer Bruner and Lee Fisher, neither one of them is Dick Celeste with his campaign skills or John Glenn with his national hero. I'm not sure that either one of them can rebound as well as the two candidates that I just mentioned. I don't know that uh, Fisher or Bruner is that resilient. Maybe Jerry thinks they are. Well, I, I, I keep, keep in mind uh, uh, a couple of things. Um, number one, um, I think I'm right about this, that uh, never in the history of Ohio has a woman been the standard bearer of her party for either the Senate or the governor. We've never had a woman who was the nominee uh, in, the, in the fall. We've had women run in primaries, but I don't think that woman's ever run well, in a general election. Right, you're right. Mary in the general Mary election. Went. So, you know, maybe, maybe history is upon us here, number one. Number two, um, that in, in terms of the point about, about Jennifer Bruner criticizing Lee Fisher uh, and therefore criticizing the governor, in this terrible economic time that we're facing now, Lee Fisher gave up his position as head of the Department of Development. And, you know, when the governor needed him most, he's, you know, he's MIA. Um, and I think that'll become an issue about Lee Fisher, uh, how that plays to the governor. The governor's going to have to deal with that. But that's about Lee Fisher. All right, well, let's move on to topic three here. A lot of parents gritting their teeth when it comes to buying school supplies as the kids get ready to return to school. Normally, that's a great activity, right? They have to make sacrifices this year to get those backpacks filled. With school tax levy defeats still fresh and more tax levy votes coming in the fall, school systems are being scrutinized to see what sacrifices that they are making. So let me ask you, Mark Weaver. Some teachers and educators are foregoing basic pay increases, and some voters are saying that they want this. Is it fair to ask teachers to do this? Well, it's only fair if you want to pass a levy. And voters who are in tough economic circumstances tend to vote no on levies, and it gives them even bigger reason to vote no if they think the school district has not been prudent with money. 
You'll hear, you'll hear voters complain about how much administrator salaries are, how much a certain building or classroom costs, and they do have a persistent complaint that teachers union contracts allow for teachers to continue to get raises even as the economy goes down. But some of that is in state law, isn't these step increases that reward teachers oh, sure. for spending a certain amount of time in a district, that's law. Remember, any reason someone can have the vote no, they'll take it and they'll grab onto it. And so when I do levy campaigns for my clients, I tell them an organized no campaign it has a much easier time of it than we do on the side of passing the levy because voters will say, look how much money those teachers are making or look how much money those administrators are making. I think the folks that are pushing that um, for the uh, pay cuts um, or to forego their pay increases in the uh, Worthington City Schools uh, are going out of their way to say, we know you're the best. You're worth every dime of it. But two years ago, when you were negotiating this contract, we weren't in the dire straits we are now. The rest of us have had to take pay cuts or take furloughs or whatever kind of sacrifices, um, God forbid, you know, losing your job altogether. Why can't you pitch in and suffer the same fate the rest of us are? Do you think people are getting a little frustrated too with the high profile cuts when they cut sports programs and, and some very uh, active uh, extracurricular activities and, and that sort of thing. Do you think that people are getting very frustrated with that, whereas maybe they want the district to make more administrative cuts, which wouldn't make as much in terms of headlines? That's not what I'm hearing. I'm hearing people say, we're sick of being held hostage by your, your, your threats of canceling the football program. That's a big waste of money. That's not what education's all about anyways. At least that's what I'm hearing from the really hardcore opponents. It's a double-edged sword. Almost every school levy falls into two obvious categories. Parents of current students who want more spending, retirees whose kids are done who want less spending. The retirees say, look at you holding the sports hostage. I'm mad at you, I'm voting no. The people whose kids are in there get angry and volunteer and donate because they're worried about their kids and neither side has a corner on the truth. But we do have an issue with regard to passing school levies. In August, only 39% passed. So that implies that people just really aren't very supportive of paying these tax levies. Retirees vote more than people in their 30s and 40s, and so in a low turnout election, older people will vote more, and they tend to be more anti-levy. Well, what do you do, though, when you're a school district and 80 to 85 percent of your budget is going to be the salaries for the people? I mean, these school districts are very people-intensive. That's, that's the backbone of any or yeah. most organizations. It's, everybody a, knows a that. A successful school levy has to be well-organized with lots of people buying in, and you have to communicate well. And unfortunately, none of these folks have run campaigns before. If they'd hired someone like Jerry or myself or any one of the 50 consultants that are out there, they'd say, here's how you win a campaign. Instead, they do it like a bake sale. A bunch of amateurs around say, "What should we do to pass the levy?" That's a great well, idea, a and they run out and do that. Associated with though professionalizing it too much, you know, there is a certain you, you're right, and that's a double-edged sword too. I mean, people would criticize them for spending the money on that to pass a levy. That would be a source of criticism sure. for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people think too that the personal stories of the kids going out door to door and and those sorts of things maybe would attract a little bit more in terms of support and, and pull at those heartstrings maybe better than a professional campaign. Might. I I, I did a, a, a levy in Cleveland a number of years ago. They had not passed a levy in 13 years. Um, and I decided that the, that the theme was that people would say, I voted against every levy for the last 13 years. Here's why I'm voting for this one. So you acknowledge that people have voted against this because mm -hmm. the closest they came was 20 points. And now you're telling them a reason to vote for it. Um, and you know, I think you've got you to deal with that because most of these levies that are on the ballot are ones that failed. All More right. than once.
Well, let's move on to another hot topic here. People sometimes complain about the volume of commercials when they watch TV. Obviously, they're not watching here. Lately, though, the volume has been raised at that celebrated American tradition, the town hall meeting. Discussions about health care reform have led to shouting matches in some places. So some public officials, including U.S. Representative Mary Jo Kilroy, are dialing for dialogue. They're using phones to conduct teletown meetings. So Ann Fisher, some lawmakers are doing this, and, and there's uh, some criticism. They're stepping away from the spotlight. They're not hearing all their constituents in these sorts of town hall meetings, but can you blame them? Well, then, yeah, the question is, can they hear all their constituents at the traditional town hall meeting? And clearly they can't. Um, actually, the, the tele-town hall meeting that Mary Jo Kilroy had uh, uh, a couple days ago attracted about 3,000 listeners and they fielded 17 questions on all different kinds of issues regarding the health care reform and uh, pro and con and, and everything right from whether it calls for abortions whether it uh, you know is socialized medicine whatever you want they, they took them all and it was interesting to listen to but what you didn't have was the feedback. You didn't have the immediacy of somebody standing up there and saying how they felt about it. What you heard were questions and then answers from uh, Congresswoman Kilroy. And that's a big difference from what I think of as a traditional town hall meeting. So there's there's pros and cons. Um, at the, at the in-person in ones, people are afraid to step forward. At least that was a, an assertion. Um, that's not a problem here. They're screening all the calls and, and uh, bringing out the questions that seem, they said that seem to have the most people asking. And, you so. And she's not the only one that's doing these. Not at all. Uh, Pat T. Berry, congressman, week. and yeah. also uh, Steve Austria, another right. congressman. Right. So it's it's not a it's not a party thing. It's not the Democrats trying to slide under the radar with those kinds of things at all. And I don't think this won't be the last one that she does or anybody does. And I don't think it'll be the only way that they. I think they may go back to the town hall uh, in person town hall. I, see, I don't think of these tele things, conferences as town, I think of them as teleconferences. I do not think of them as town I think hall. there's a bogus quality to these teleconferences. It reminds me of the Nixon presentation way back in the 60s or when he rented a hall and had this fake debate. Uh, these people want to run, nobody forced Mary Jo Kilroy or Pat Tiberi to run for election. He or she should present themselves in a real town hall. Sherrod Brown did it and he is a about as big a self-promoter as there is and defensive sometimes, but he took hostile uh, questions, friendly questions, maybe he didn't provide as much notice as he should have, but he came out of it unscathed. I think it makes them bigger if they go through a presentation like this, and I think they look like they're cowards if they're in this studio That's with the uh, screening these calls. Just a point of information here. Uh, I, I have, I have a, a client who's a congressman uh, in Tennessee, and these, these tell teleconferencing, town hall meetings, whatever, whatever they're called, have been going on for a while. So it, I don't want you to think that they're just oh, doing it now. Oh. Uh, they may be doing it now, but, but uh, you know, other people have been doing it for, for a number of years. And here, here's the larger picture that should not be missed, is people really are angry about something. Without respect to what it is and why they're angry, they are angry. This notion that they've all been ginned up by people and have been given scripts to go be angry, most voters would rather be home watching television. And so for them to come out and speak, when they know there's cameras there and they know there's media there, they really believe that. And so it, the, the Congress members at least owe it to have a couple of in-face right. meetings and let these people be heard and then supplement it with telephone town halls. So, because so, you, know so you, 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 you don't think that there's anybody that comes out to these meetings that that is not that didn't leave the abortion clinic in the afternoon and is coming out to the town hall well, meetings tonight? I think tonight. there's some people who've been bussed in 
both sides know how to bus people in. But right. the, the, we've seen across the board how many people are showing up. The notion that this is AstroTurf suggests that these people are paid actors to go and be angry. These are people who are really upset about the health care issue, and members of Congress are supposed to be listening. Yeah, they might have gotten their talking points from TV, but um, I, I don't disagree with you there. But another aspect of this teleconferencing thing um, is uh, that a lot of people can't go to the in-person town halls. That's a fact. They don't have the transportation. They're not well. There are a lot of people. take a long time, too, by the time you get in there and hot, sit there and wait. They're crowded. They're yeah. angry. They can't get to the bathrooms. They can't get to the drinking fountain, whatever it might be. It's not easy for everybody to get to those kind of things. These teleconferences do give a lot of people with otherwise without a voice and who can't otherwise be present in person uh, an option. But if all you have is a cell phone, then you're paying to be on your congressperson's teletown hall. Because a, a lot of voters are cell phone only True. voters. All right, well, let's move on to our last topic here. The president wants to know what it's going to take to him for him to convince you that Cash for Clunkers has been a success. That program ends on Monday night, and it has moved a lot of inventory. And Ohio auto workers are now returning to factories. But some dealers say they are still waiting for the government to pay them. And some analysts say the money we spent on cars was just siphoned off from other areas of the economy. But Jerry Austin, does the president deserve a, a victory lap for this? Is, is this I, a great I, I, thing? I don't know that he's asking for a victory lap, but, but let's keep some something in mind that, uh, that we know in Ohio. In Ohio, we balance the budget because it's by law. In Washington, they balance the budget by printing more money. So if, if they need to print more money for more clunker money, they'll print more money. Uh, you know, if they're getting, if it's run its course, it's run its course. But the notion that, that the check's coming late from the government isn't new. And that has gotten some uh, auto uh, dealers out of the program, though. They've decided to pack up the program even earlier than Monday because they say, you know, I've sold 100 cars and I've gotten three checks. Well, and their cash flow can't handle it. You know, they have to pay their people. Um, I, what I haven't heard, and maybe I'm just missing it, is someone explaining, you know, from the government saying, you're right, and here's how we're fixing that. I just heard you're right so far. Well, we, Congress people have been rushing to support Cash for Clunkers because it appears to be popular because when you give away essentially a rebate coupon for $4,500, people will like that. But the notion of helping the American car industry was exposed when we found out that most of the cars that were being bought were foreign import cars. And so it's popular when you give away stuff for free. People always like that. But paying for it, I agree with Jerry, paying for it's the hard part. And what they'll do is they'll print I more money. I think most might be a stretch. They've sold a lot of cobalts. They're Increasing I think it was production. Six out of every ten. Well, and they're sold a lot of Ford Focuses. They've had to add lines for both those models. So while the imports have done well, it hasn't been inconsequential for American no, auto No, and the producers. salespeople that are selling them and earning commissions aren't from overseas. They're from right here. They live here. I mean, there's there's more. Right, but the money comes from somewhere. Every forty-five hundred dollar check comes from a family who's having trouble making ends meet and their tax bill is going to go up. And the Obama administration is now admitting they're probably going to have to go beyond their magic 250 and down into the working class. Taxes will go up. Well, what about the impact on the economy once this is all over? I mean, are we going to bottom right back down to where car sales were before? Because auto dealers have been saying this shows that people are ready to get back into showrooms again. I think it's just one factor and a, a lot of other things. I don't think you could isolate this out and say this is going to be responsible for anything particular in terms of the larger economy. Unless they're going to choose an industry one at a time and give rebates, so they'll go to the donut industry and do cash for dunkers or some other crazy thing, because you can help one industry by saying, we're going to essentially subsidize your purchase as a laundry or, or a washing aren't machine. are less auto dealers now? And then didn't we, we see them shut down all That's these true. auto dealers where there was, there was uh, one, one up in uh, 
uh, Northeast Ohio that had been in business for 80 years, uh, and the notion that that this uh, auto dealer, let's call him Bob, everybody bought their car from Bob. It didn't matter what Bob was selling because it was Bob's cars, and that Bob's not there, that they got to go 60 miles and not buy a Toyota or not buy buy a Forest, that they got to buy a Chevy again is 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 misplaced. And and so this this whole auto industry thing, the good part about it, people going back to work. Is there a concern, you think, that uh, since these payments didn't come through, that people are going to think this is a, a bad sign for other future stimulus programs and government programs? Let's see how soon they come through. I mean, I think we have well, some applications are now two. being rejected, apparently, because the paperwork wasn't filled out properly. So you do have dealers having to go back and the, redo the paperwork. The federal government's doing something like that? This is <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> Never. Exactly. You, know, you had it film right. Film at 11. <laughs> well, this, this idea actually came from a Northeast Ohio congresswoman. Well, I mean, I, I think I think the point is you've got a government program, yeah. right? I mean, so you, we know that by definition that's going to be screwed up. Uh, I think Bill's point is right. They're going to get the check at some point, even if they have to fill out the forms again. All right. Well, it's time for our weekly off-the-record comments from the panel. Final thoughts or predictions for the week ahead. And Ann Fisher, welcome to the public broadcasting family. You are first. Thank you. Um, I think when most voters go to the polls in November, they will be very, very confused by their vociferous and very expensive arguments for and against uh, casino gambling, um, which is would be is going to be a constitutional amendment or is a proposed constitutional amendment. There are two others that will not get the kind of attention they deserve. Uh, issue one would permit state to issue bonds to provide homecoming bonuses to veterans uh, coming back from overseas. And issue two would require the state to create a livestock care standards board. This is supposed to make everything good for us when it comes to our food. Uh, the opponents say it's exactly the opposite. Maybe we ought to be paying attention to those as well. All right, Bill Hershey. I'm going to outsource this to Cleveland economist Ken Malin, who noticed an uptick in Ohio's economy due to cash for clunkers and increased auto production. Quote, you kind of live by the manufacturing sword. You die by the manufacturing sword. Now we may be resurrected by the manufacturing sword. End quote. How true it is, or at least seems to be. Uh, Jerry Austin. Well, we have now, I think, two women that are running for Secretary of State for the Democratic nomination. So my prediction is there will be a third person at least entering that race. And I don't know who that person is, but my prediction it will be someone of the male persuasion. And Mark Weaver. New media is taking over politics. You can now use Twitter and Facebook to talk to people. Beginning next year, Columbus on the Record will put our Twitter addresses under our name when we're on TV. And there's mine. I'm the first one to do it. Twitter.com, com council. <laughs> always ahead. Always right ahead there. Well, that is Columbus on the Record for this week. You can continue the conversation at our website. Our question this week, do you think Cash for Clunkers was a success? That's at our website, WOSU.org slash COTR. I'm Karen Kastler. Mike Thompson will be back in this chair next time. Have a good week. <laughs>